the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called Something Beautiful for God, discussing what the Bible says about humanity, sexuality, marriage, and procreation. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Today we're going to be taking a look at uh, two different texts of Scripture. We're going to be taking a look at Genesis chapter 2, and we're also going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First uh, Genesis chapter 2, this is uh, the story of God creating marriage. It's also the story of God uh, creating sex, giving sex as a gift to the man and the woman. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 7 develops that as it applies it to marriage. So let's take a look at these two sections of scripture. Genesis chapter 2 verses 24 and 25 say, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then let's also take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession... Not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So today we come to what might be the most controversial section of my sermon series that we have yet come to. Today we're going to be talking about sex. 
and I've gotten your emails, and I hear you, and I respect and love those of you that are uncomfortable with the fact that I am preaching this. I understand those who have stayed away because you didn't want your children to be exposed to this yet. I understand the difficulty or the frustration, and understand that I don't take any particular enjoyment about addressing this topic. You probably notice how nervous I seem. It's because I'm very nervous. I understand why it is that I mean, this is just a hard thing to talk about, but let me say at the outset, we need to talk more about this in the church. I remember when I was a student in high school, and I was a member at Brookfield Christian Reformed Church, and my pastor, Peter Verhulst, got up to preach a sermon on lust, and he read from 2 Samuel 13. He read the story of the rape of Tamar. And even as a high school student, I could tell at this particular time that he was a bit nervous. And as he, after he read the passage, he said, let me just say that there are some people who say we shouldn't talk about these things in church. I think church is exactly where we need to be talking about these things. And he went on to preach a sermon on lust that I still think is one of the best sermons that he has ever preached. And it had a deep impact on my own spiritual development for good. He was right. The church is exactly where we need to be talking about these sorts of things. And so let me say right now, some people say that we shouldn't talk about things like sex in church. I think it is exactly the place where we need to be talking about this sort of thing. Part of the reason that we need to be talking about sex is that the culture talks about it more than it should, in more obnoxious, offensive, and vulgar ways than it should. And the church talks about it, in my experience, infrequently. And whenever that happens, your thinking on a particular issue becomes more shaped by your community or the broader culture than it does about scripture. And that is a problem for any issue. If you don't hear about sex from the pulpit, you'll become a Christian who isn't as fully formed as you might be. Just about, just like if I refrain from talking about any other particular topic. We need the whole testimony of scripture. And the scriptures say a lot about this particular matter. There's an entire book of erotic love poetry after all. And the scriptures confront sex in a matter that is more straightforward than we're used to and more careful than we're used to. And so I'm going to seek to do the same today as I approach this particular topic. I'm going to try to stick as close to the text here in Genesis chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians 7 as I possibly can. I'm going to seek to be no more or no less explicit than the Bible is. In fact, I chose some of the less explicit parts of Scripture because I understand that people can be uncomfortable about this. But we really shouldn't be. If God inspired this by the Holy Spirit, then we should expect it to be preached, we should expect to talk about it, and we should talk about it with the same sort of frankness and care that the Bible talks about it with. And so it's important for parents to talk about this along with your children. It's important for Christian friends who are in close connection with each other to talk frankly about sex in pure, chaste, holy ways, in the ways that the scriptures give to us. And let me say that I've been helped immensely by the Reverend Jeremy Meeks on this matter, both because he is getting his PhD in um, 
in early sexual practices in the Greco-Roman Empire at the time of, uh, at the time of Christ. He's getting his doctorate in, in sexual ethics at that particular time, but also because he preached a sermon on this particular topic that was masterful, that involves some of his research. And so I'm going to be taking his thesis and some of his outline as I preach this particular topic. Now, we We take the text a little bit differently, but I'm not going to belabor it. Jeremy Meeks is a fantastic, faithful preacher, and the Lord willing, he also is going to be preaching here on a different text next week at 6 p.m. in the evening. So look forward to that because he's a fantastic preacher. In any case, this is a matter about which there is no small confusion, both within the church and outside of it. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, summarizes three historic American approaches to sex. Here's what he says on pages 251 and 252. He says, and I'm reading from Keller here, historically, there have been countless attitudes about sex. First, there's sex as a natural appetite. This view goes something like this. Sex, it is said, was once surrounded by taboos, but now we realize that sex is indeed like eating or any other good or natural appetite. That means we should feel free to fulfill that appetite when we feel the need to fulfill that appetite. And there is no reason why we shouldn't sample a variety of cuisines and continually look for new taste sensations, forbidding the satisfaction of a new appetite or limiting it for years is as unhealthy and really as impossible as trying to stop eating for years. Now, he's describing a view here, okay? He's not saying what he believes. He's describing a view. He goes on, another view of sex is more negative. And it has deep roots in some forms of ancient thought. Sex is seen as a part of our lower physical nature, distinct from our higher, rational, more spiritual nature. In this view, sex is a degrading, dirty thing, but a necessary evil for the continuation of the human race. Today, a third view is also prominent. While the first view sees sex as an unavoidable drive and the second as a necessary evil, the last view sees sex as a critical form of self-expression, a way to be yourself and find yourself. In this view, the individual may wish to use sex within marriage to build a family, but that's up to the individual. Sex is primarily for an individual's fulfillment and self-realization, however he or she wishes to pursue it. So the question is, which one of those views is or is the closest to the Christian view of sex? Well, it's a trick question, because, which is why I didn't ask for an answer, because none of those views faithfully reflect what it is that the scriptures say about sex. Now, the first and the third of those views might be more immediately clear to all of us. The first view, that sex is a natural appetite, that it's just a natural appetite, much like eating or drinking, is one that's pretty self-defeating, isn't it? I remember having a professor at Wheaton College who told me about an unusual experience that he had as he was reading the newspaper at one point sometime during the 1970s. He started reading the commentary section of this particular newspaper, and in this newspaper, one person who was making a commentary said that sex is just 
an appetite, exactly what Tim Keller expresses or articulates here. It was very popular, apparently, in the 1960s and 70s. It's just an appetite, just like eating or drinking. And so this particular person making commentary said, hey, it's just an appetite, and you've got to engage it, or else you're going to do yourself harm, just like if you were to keep yourself from eating or drinking. As I remember, my professor went on and continued the story. He said, after I read that section of commentary, I flipped to the news section of the newspaper. And he read about a Soviet dissident who had been arrested and imprisoned in the Soviet Union. And to try to get concessions from the government at that particular time, he decided he was going to go on a hunger strike. And so he refrained from eating. He was trying to follow the example of of Gandhi. Gandhi in the 30s famously went on a hunger strike to protest some of the actions of the uh, British government. But this uh, Soviet dissident didn't have the same success that Gandhi had had. The Soviet government was completely unresponsive, and so this man had just died 45 days after beginning his hunger strike. He died of starvation. Could you imagine if somebody declared a sex strike in order to gain political concessions from a government? After they lasted for a month or two or three, they would find themselves no less healthy than they had at the first day of that strike. It's simply not like a natural appetite. There would be no danger to your health because it's fundamentally not an appetite like eating or drinking. The drive might be stronger than the drive to eat on this or that occasion, but saying no to urges is fundamentally different from saying no to hunger pangs. But also, sex is deeper than just eating or drinking. It's more intimate. And to say that it's simply an appetite actually demeans and degrades sex. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now more from Pastor Derek in our series called Something Beautiful for God, discussing humanity, sexuality, marriage, and procreation. The third view that it's a a, a way to achieve self-fulfillment is also fundamentally flawed because it neglects several important points. First, you are a body and you cannot experiment with your body in order to be yourself or find yourself without fundamentally changing yourself. And because of the intimate nature of the way that we use our bodies in these sorts of ways, continuing to experiment with your body out of a goal of self-fulfillment will harm you. Second, this view that sex can be pursued as a means to self-fulfillment is flawed because sex always involves someone other than yourself. And making use of other people's bodies for your own fulfillment is extraordinarily selfish and harmful to other people. And third, while sex is deeper than eating or drinking, it's not sufficient to build your life on or to find your fulfillment in. And let me tell you, if you are seeking to build your life on sexual experience, you're going to become empty or pathetic, and probably both. 
And I, I don't say that to shame you, but to try to invite you into a Christian vision for how to use your body. Both of these views of sex that I've just kind of talked about allow for sex outside of marriage. This is a misuse of our bodies. It's not how God has intended it to be. So the Christian view of sex isn't that first view that Tim Keller talks about. It's not the third view that Tim Keller talks about. So is it the second that it's dirty or it's a part of our lower nature? It's not a part of our higher spiritual nature. It's a necessary evil. This is what people popularly think the Christian view of sex is. And some Christians have at times held to this particular view of it. My great-grandparents, I've been told, I've never met these ones. They're not related to anybody in this congregation or wouldn't use them as an example in this particular case. My great-grandparents, after they reached their desired number of children, they slept in separate beds for the rest of their life. Apparently, they were of the opinion that if they weren't going to try to have children, they weren't going to have marital relations, and that this was apparently a relatively common thing to do at the time, at least among their friends. Somebody I knew was reading a book on marriage and dating, and I picked it up and started paging through it and skimming through it. This was a popular Christian book on dating and marriage, and one of the things that it said was, now if you were a very spiritual person, it may be that after you get married, you want to wait for some weeks or months or years before you have sex. You want to wait. Marriage should come maybe years before sex comes. It was suggesting or hinting that if you're really spiritual, that that's not something that needs to happen in your marriage. There was a whole Christian denomination that actually believed or taught something like this. This denomination said that once you became a Christian, you were to engage in chaste living for the rest of your life, whether or not you were married. This denomination, the Shakers, doesn't exist anymore. They had a substantial problem passing the faith to the next generation for one reason or another, but they existed for a brief period of time. They made beautiful furniture for just a little bit of time, and then they stopped existing because, well, they believed that you shouldn't have sex even if you're married. And so this notion that sex is either dirty or a part of a lower nature or that it's somehow more spiritual, even if you're married, not to engage in sex is not Christian. Sex is a gift from God. It's to be enjoyed. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 tells us about. What 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7 tells us is that a married husband and wife should engage in frequent, mutually satisfying generous sex. And I'm going to be talking about it in the following ways. I'm going to just be working through the flow of the passage in this sort of way. The, the passage opens with a correction of false views, and then, then um, Paul goes on under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to correct, uh, to talk about connection in marriage. And he talks about that in a few different ways, about how we're supposed to have and give and own one of the things I didn't mention in my notes, but I'll, I'll have to pick it up, is that we're also called not to deprive. And then he concludes in the last two verses to talk about how celibacy is a better option. So we're going to be talking about all of these different things, and this is important for all of us, because if you are called to be single and celibate for your life, then you need to know how to celebrate married sex. Few things could be more subversive in our world than being a celibate person who rejoices 
in what marriage is supposed to be, including, including sex. If you're single and planning to be married, you need to know what to expect. And if you're single, you don't have prospects for marriage right now, but you continue to pray that it might happen, it's very important that you orient your desires correctly. So let's talk about what the scriptures tell us about today. So it opens with this correction of false views. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, we're told now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the first verse. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, it may be we don't have this correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church. I I wish that we did. It would be so helpful for some of the background information. It seems as though Paul actually wrote a couple other letters to the Corinthian church. Only these have survived by the providence of God and the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit. And so 1st and 2nd Corinthians are the part of the the Bible, but Paul had, it seems to be an ongoing kind of conversation with the Corinthian church, and he is quoting one of the things that they wrote to him in a letter that they sent him. They wrote to him, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, not to touch a woman. Now, it may be that they were getting at, at a couple of different things here. The first is, it may have been just uh, an overcorrection to the general kind of Corinthian milieu. At the time that Paul was writing, at the time when Jesus lived and the early church was in existence, the city of Corinth was the most well-known for being a city of debauchery, specifically as it related to sexual things. There was a coarse joke within the city and outside of the city that to live a promiscuous life or to engage in gross immorality or drunken debauchery was to Corinthianize. So common was the misuse of one's body in sex in Corinth that to Corinthianize was a joke for how you would engage in that sort of behavior. I don't don't even know if there is a city that has a similar sort of reputation as Corinth in this particular time. Even kind of the surrounding cities were a bit uh, put off by how perverse the sexual practices were in Corinth. And so in, re- in response to that, it seems as though within the church there might have been this pendulum shift to the other direction, right? Where, where some people in the Corinthian church were saying, all right, well, if you become a Christian, it means you don't touch a woman ever again. It may be that that was being said just in general, that once you become a Christian, you shouldn't, you, shouldn't plan to, you shouldn't plan to have a family, a natural family anymore because you're a part of a spiritual family. It may be that the Corinthian church was something like the shakers in that regard. It may be that, that they were saying, hey, once you become a Christian, you, uh, you leave any trace of sexual activity behind you. You just don't engage any longer. It may be that couples in fact, were coming to faith in Jesus in the Corinthian church and thinking that they needed to stop having relations because they were Christians now. And sex was a part of that Corinthianizing. And so Paul, in response to all of that, is telling them a Christian view, a Christian view of sex. He's telling them, no, no, no. No, if if you're married, it's not that you stop engaging. It's... You engage now as a Christian. You engage as a Christian. 
Paul is instructing them that the solution to the desires that they have isn't avoiding for their life, it's engaging in the proper context. Paul is expressing and explaining here that Christianity is a faith that has a deeply positive view of the body and of sex as gifts that God has given to us. And that the church, that Christ never expects for us to stop engaging in the proper context once we come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, I think this is really important because there are a couple things that that go on, I think, in in the church today. One is that I know of couples that, uh, that get engaged that want a particular date for their marriage, but also have expressed that they are struggling mightily in the realm of purity. And to those sorts of couples, I say, you know what? Just get married. It's way better to get married and to begin fulfilling those desires in a biblically appropriate way than it is for you to put off your marriage another year or two because you want the the perfect date or you want the church to look a certain sort of way, or you want the right banquet hall, or you want, I don't know, any other such thing. Get married. Get married. It may be, you know, also that some of these Corinthians were saying, hey, if I I am a Christian, it might be more holy for me to stay married but avoid sex. And Paul here just says, just stop that. Trying to be more spiritual than God is always dumb. And it's actually worse than being dumb. It's, it's deeply destructive. And so in correcting this, Paul talks about the right ways to connect in marriage. And that's the majority of the text here. It'll be the majority of the rest of our message. He redirects their thinking and recreates the appropriate way of thinking for husbands and wives in marriage. And as he tells them about what marriage is to look like, he creates and gives to them this environment of a perfect equality in marriage. There is a total equality given to the man and the woman as it relates to the marriage bed. There are balanced pairs here that exist in the particular text that set up a perfect balance that the husband and wife are called to. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, may God bless you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.